Hey, I'm Danny Levy, and you're listening to Digital Transformation and Leadership. This is the show where we go behind the scenes with today's top business leaders to understand how they're digitally transforming their company. This week, I'm joined by Rishon Blumberg and Michael Solomon, the founders of 10X Ascend and the authors of Game Changer, How to Be 10X in the Talent Economy. Rishon, Michael, welcome to Digital Transformation and Leadership. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. It's always good to, to get an episode with two guests. It doesn't happen often, but I, I always enjoy it. So um, would you be able to quickly introduce yourselves and, and what it is you're doing? Could we start maybe with you first, Rashawn? Sure. Uh, the voice you're hearing now is from Rashawn Blumberg. I am sitting in my home office in New York City. Um, I'm born and raised here, and Michael and I, who you'll hear from next, uh, actually grew up together meeting first in the third grade so I believe we've known each other now for about 44 years um, which as you can imagine means we've been through many many interesting experiences together uh, and I'll just stop there for a minute and Michael you can jump in so some of those interesting experiences uh, you know just to give just to give some background I'm, I'm also born and raised in in Manhattan New York City um, some of those interesting experiences are the beginnings of our entrepreneurial career, which included some early businesses that were not always perfectly legal according to the laws of the United States. Um, nothing too bad, just making fake IDs when we were in high school and throwing some keg parties. Um, and we, we have researched that the statute of limitations is up on these on these these acts that we did that were not so great, but we learned a lot. And we started our entrepreneurial career early and we started learning about it early. And there were some good lessons and takeaways from that. Could you have imagined that all these years later you'd still be working together and still be in business when you were doing those those fake IDs and the keg parties? I, I don't think we could have imagined yeah. beyond beyond that year. Like okay. I, I think at that point in our in our lives, you know, we're fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old. Yeah, it's really hard to fathom what life is like. I'll just say I'm fifty-two. Michael's headed there very shortly what life is like as an adult, mm. um, let alone even in college or right after college. So I think at that age, it was just uh, blinders on and, you know, enjoy life as a young teenager. What was it that you think that drew, drew, drew um, each of the, um, what, what, what was it that made you friends and, and why did you end up working together at that early age and what's kind of kept you working together? That is a really interesting question on so many fronts. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start with, um, I think what keeps us working together, even though we didn't always know this, is we bring pretty different skill sets to the equation. Okay. Um, and our, and our, we excel at the things that the other person isn't necessarily either good at or interested in, which is, a, which is very good for a partnership. Mm. Um, uh, you know, w w one of us is more right brain, one of us is more left brain, but we're both enough in the middle to be able to communicate. Um, but I, I, it's hard to sort of think about what got us going. I mean, part of the reason I'm so, so sort of surprised is the thing that's so clear to me is we both are entrepreneurs in our DNA from that very young age. And I don't know if it was a movie we saw back then, but none of our parents are entrepreneurs. <laughs> like it, it, it's it's very odd that we just came out in the world that way and sort of saw the world that way. And and it's so ingrained in who we are. So, I, I would argue that, uh, and this is true today for entrepreneurs, that um, necessity is the mother of invention. 
and entrepreneurs are people that really see something in the world or need to create something in the world and they go and they do it. And I think for us, growing up in New York, in the environment of the uh, late 70s and 80s, um, you know, we were just exposed to a lot of different forces. And also we were, we grew up basically middle class. We're both essentially raised by single mothers for the most part. Um, so, you know, we had certain opportunities and I think proximity to certain opportunities, but it wasn't like we were handed this path. We didn't have like a family business. Mm -hmm. We didn't have, you know, major connections in the world. And so for us, necessity was if you want to find your way, and especially if you want to find your way in your own terms a little bit, you have to be an entrepreneur. And I think that's true of not just for our story, but I think entrepreneurs in general. Mm. Have you ever worked for anybody else, either of you? Yeah. We, we both have. Um, it wasn't for very long when I okay. think about it. I mean, in, in college I worked, um, I sort of did the restaurant thing for a little while and yeah. had a lot of fun doing that, totally enjoyed that. Um, and then got out of college or almost out of college and started touring with Springsteen <laughs> for a few years and then took a job at Sony. And by the time I was 25, we, I left to start this business with, with this crazy guy on the phone <laughs> on, on this, on this interview with me and sort of, we've never looked back. I've haven't, I haven't had a boss or a resume since I was 25. Fantastic. The same thing for me. I, I yeah. didn't tour with Bruce Springsteen, but I started out in the concert world. Mm -hmm. um, the school that the college that I went to, I was the director of concerts for basically the four years I was there. And the company that we hired to help us negotiate with the agents for the artists, um, I left when I graduated school. I ended up working for them. They're a company called Niederlander, mm -hmm. big Broadway theater family, and they also own part of the Yankees. Um, and they had uh, a bunch of amphitheaters around the United States, so they had a concert business. So I went to work for the concert business and left there uh, short, probably like eight months after I got there to work for one of the biggest uh, and most famous concert promoters in the United States, a guy named Ron Delsner. Um, and then same thing, you know, Michael actually left his job at Sony Music before I left the concert job. Uh, because we thought at the time when we started our management company that the concert role that I had would be more beneficial to the artists that we might manage. So I stayed for about another, I don't know, six months or so, Michael? Do, do, do you remember the, it was the a time year. frame? It was exactly a year. So, all right. So I stayed, stayed at that job for about a year after we started our management company. Um, and that was, uh, you know, I think both of us had about two to three years total of working for somebody else experience. Do you think that working for somebody else gave you a good grounding, though, before you went up and set up your own thing? I think it made it very clear what we didn't want to do. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was going to have a similar answer. It made it very clear to me that I wanted um, sort of my, my fate and my future to be in my hands rather than in somebody else's hands. Um, and that, that was like a big... It was a moment of clarity for my three okay. years working at Sony. But, but I will say, because we had some insight into the music business, having grown up in New York City around people whose parents were in it, um, I think both Michael and I understood that if you're going to be in entertainment, mm -hmm. you, you know, if you're at a record label, you're very siloed and you do, your career is involved in the record, record label yeah. world. You don't really work in a bunch of other fields. Um, or, or areas, I should say. 
And the same thing if you're in concerts. If you're a concert promoter, that's sort of where your focus is. You may interact with people at labels, etc., but that really is not part of your purview. Whereas with artist management, you're at the center of all of these things. And that was also very appealing to us. I, I don't think we wanted to be pigeonholed in a certain vertical mm-hmm. um, within the vertical of entertainment. Um, so that was, was definitely in the backdrop, at least of my mind. I knew I didn't want to be just doing concert promotion. I wanted to be involved yeah. in other areas. Okay. So the, the topic we're going to get into today is, is managing 10x talent. And we've got three points we're, we're going to unpack. Uh, so it'd be great if you could talk uh, the listeners and me through the first point here, which is why companies need to adapt to be competitive as it relates to the future of work. And it would be great if, uh, if Rishon, you could kick us off here. Yeah. So, you know, we, we wrote this book called Game Changer, How to Be 10X in the Talent Economy, uh, largely in 2018 and 2019. Um, I would say we finished it pretty much at the end of 2019. And a lot of the impetus for writing the book was what we saw in the marketplace that worked and didn't work as it related to um, talent. And and we're using technology as our backdrop in the book, but this really, you know, it, it works in almost any vertical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so a lot of a lot of what we used to talk about was the need for remote work friendly environments. Uh, obviously, I don't think I need to talk about that topic all that much right now because the pandemic made it super clear, A, how vulnerable companies were to not being ready to work that way, and B, how much more prepared they are now to deal with a blended in-office, out-of-office work environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was one of the, the main points that the book covers, which is the changing landscape. And the landscape changed so drastically with COVID that it really brought a lot of the topics to the forefront of companies. Um, so I won't, I, I don't think we'll spend much time talking about those sort of low-hanging fruit things. But, you know, the backdrop here is that automation uh, and technology are allowing companies to do so much more with less and by less, we mean fewer people. Um, so the old way of work, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, music, the movie Office Space, but Office Space was a movie from the early to mid-1990s, uh, basically about this technology company that did not really care about who the, 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 their staff was. They had no idea who they were. They just basically threw numbers of people at problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that world doesn't exist anymore. Everybody has to do more with less. So in order for you to be competitive today, you need to have a fundamental shift in the way that you view your, for lack of a better phrase, uh, human resources. Um, so for us, the, the simple shift from employee or human resource to talent, when you start thinking about these people who are key players, right, the LeBron Jameses of your organization, they're talent and they need to be treated that way. That doesn't need, mean they need to be coddled, but it means you have to approach talent, whether it's uh, people working full-time for you or freelancers in a different mindset. So that's sort of what we talk about when we talk about the, the talent economy and, and what's going on in the, in the marketplace today. And Michael, I'm sure you'll have some additional comments here. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you, covered, you covered it quite well. And, you know, the, the, the only thing that I think is worth expanding, uh, you know, as we talk about this topic is you've got sort of these two cohorts of people that are really important to companies. You've got the 10Xers who, um, we, you know, we should, we should define a little bit, but these are the rock stars. These are the people who, you know, the term comes from somebody who provides 10, time the, 10 times the value as their peers. So these are, these are people you want to have. 
Um, and that's a real thing in the engineering world. There are people like that. But more importantly, you need to have rock stars. But the other group that, that really so many of the same rules apply to are millennials and Gen Z. And it's a generational thing. And I don't know if they if they learn some of these ideas from 10Xers and or from from sort of the startup world. But ultimately, you've got these really big classes, cohorts of, of people coming into companies that don't want to be treated the way that their parents were treated or the way that prior generations were treated. They want to know that the company actually cares about their goals, not just company goals, and that they have a very clear career path and life path that needs to be meaningful and fulfilling to them. And when companies really miss out on understanding what a candidate, and I use that term for people who they're trying to hire, or an employee that they've already hired, when they fail to realize what's important to those people and keeping that somehow front and center, they're not gonna get the best of those people. They're not gonna be able to retain those people. In many instances, they're not gonna be able to hire those people. And somehow this, this easily gets um, interpreted by uh, more traditionalist and conservative people like, oh, you you know, what are you going to, you know, make everybody uh, their own bespoke lunch because they're all little delicate snowflakes. Hmm. You can take that position if you want to take that position. But the bottom line is, if you want to do what's best for your company, you, you have to look around and say, how do we get the people who are going to work for us to do their best work? Um, and that is and that is really what we're trying to do is look at, at you know, the first half of the book covers how does a company get the best out of its people? And the second half of the book is for individuals, how do I get the best out of myself? And how do I help my company get the best out of me? So it sort of flips it on its head. Fantastic, really interesting. I've been, I was thinking about this point a lot. I mean, I run a company here in, in Singapore and um, we used to be in the office every day, like most companies, we've, we've shifted to, to fully remote work. You know, we would have rock stars, high performers in the business, we would have newer people. One of the things I've been thinking about is, do you think there's a, a risk at all for maybe some of the the new generation of workers coming into the workforce where you used to come in before and it was quite easy to get the lay of the land, you know, figure out office dynamics, who the other high performers were, um, you know, buddy up with them, maybe get a mentor, and that would kind of you know, propel and get the next generation of 10Xs or high performers coming through. And now with the fully remote work environment, especially for the newer talent, it's very difficult to figure that out if in a fully remote environment. And, you know, you can't just hear our top performers, say, for example, on the phone talking to other clients and just pick up, you know, on, on the things they say and how they interact where, you know, maybe a more formal training doesn't cover that. I was just really interested to get your thoughts around around that for companies, especially as it relates to the to the future of work? It's such an interesting timing that you asked that question um, because I don't think we've published it yet, Okay. but I just wrote um, a post which will come out soon. Okay, and this uh, wasn't pre-planned, I just asked This was that. not pre-planned. <laughs> it's called eight, eight Key Things to Do in Your First Year on the Job, and it yeah. really gets into sort of in the remote world um, and in this in this strange moment we're in, how do you how do you sort of get integrated into a company um, in the you know sort of in the right way from the get go? Um, I think it's a really important question, and I think it takes you know it's 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 very much like the other things that we talk about. It yeah. takes real proactivity um, and and thinking about how to do this a little bit differently. But you know the first thing is 
you need to go around and set up a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, it doesn't have to be long, with everybody that you, you touch on the org chart, not just the people that you're reporting to or they're reporting to you, but absolutely everybody who's adjacent to you, everybody you're gonna interact with, so you can form your own opinion, they can get to know you, you can get to know them, you can mm -hmm. get a little bit past the pure business stuff and see, is this, you know, is this somebody I connect with? Is this somebody I jive with? So I think there's there's easy things like that. And then there's also things that may get lost because people aren't used to this setting. So, you know, previously a good, certainly a good boss would sit you down in your first few weeks and talk about what are your goals and what mm -hmm. does success look like and how are you gonna measure that? And I think a lot of that's completely gone by the wayside now. And it's really important that we, that the that the the employee makes sure that that's happening and you know a lot of what we talk about in this book is sort of how to manage we don't talk we don't use this word but how to manage mm -hmm. up and how to get the how to get the best out of your boss and if your boss isn't doing things that you need in order to be able to succeed because let's be honest if you don't know w what success looks like you can't really hit it so that's that's definitely something that has to happen pretty you know pretty right up front yeah. One of the things I wanted to jump in and say is, yeah. first of all, I, I agree with the question you were asking to the extent that I do think things will be lost, mm -hmm. but I also think new uh, methodologies will be figured out. Okay. Um, the thing that we talk about internally on our end is intentionality. All of those water cooler moments, all of those things that you were talking about that you can pick up when you're in the office and around people, you have to be much more intentional about it. So we've created water cooler moments in our office where we have certain check-ins. I think at this moment we have one check-in on Monday, which is has no agenda. It's really just a everybody sort of talks and talks about what they did the weekend. You know, what, some things they're looking forward to. It's not about a business agenda. Um, and then we also. Um, have added in some other touch points during the week, whether it's one-on-ones or other group activities. And I think that that intentionality of effort is is something that is going to be so important as we move into this blended workforce. Um, I, I do think that we're seeing a major shift right now, obviously, to remote work. Mm. Um, even if you're located, co-located in the same city as your company, I do think that'll change. Um, I'm not suggesting that we're going to go back you know, next year to five five days in the office uh, work week kind of situation. But I don't think that this moment in time is going to completely radically change everything. Mm -hmm. I think we'll see a little bit of a shift back to a more blended work environment. But even so, I think that these intentional efforts that companies are making now in order to train and, and integrate people into their culture, um, I think will continue. Yeah. And, and I guess with the blended approach, is it that when you're in the office, that's when you kind of make sure that it's more meetings, interacting with people. And when you're at home, it's more around doing that knowledge based work and, and getting on with your own your own stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that part of the issue with the blended work environment, um, unless companies have very specific schedules, yeah. uh, you may be able to interact with the people that happen to be in on the day that you're in, but if everyone isn't there, then you can't really do uh, you know, sort of a, a full 360 meet of people. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think when you're in person, obviously you should make the most of it and there should be um, more interaction where where it's feasible mm -hmm. but I don't know that you're you're necessarily going to want to restructure the week so that let's say you're in the office twice a week those two days you do everything in person mm -hmm. I think you're still going to need to 
sort of have a, a typical workflow in, in, in the day. Um, and that's not going to that's not going to change that much. But yes, when people are in the office, they hopefully will you know pick up more of the face to face, casual and spontaneous things that occur. Yeah. And do you think there's maybe a little bit more uh, focus or pressure on companies now as well to maybe assign rising stars a mentor or someone that has been there a bit longer to to buddy up almost, and then you can kind of continue doing that, can't you, even in the remote environment? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we're huge proponents of mentorship, and and I think that that's something that is something we talk about in the book is sort of finding yeah. somebody in your life who can have skin in the game, which means they have a vested interest in your success, whether that's inside a company or outside a company, um, a coach or or anything like that is also important. But I, I do think mentorship is one of those things, th- th- sort of an art that has been lost, mm. not because of the fact that we're remote. I think it's something that had been lost, you know, in the last decade or two, where you just don't have that same level of mentorship. People were so focused on what their, you know, their own personal goals were that they lost this, this structure where somebody brings somebody else into the fold, right? You, you mm-hmm. sort of study under them, you learn under them, you, they take you under their wing. Um, so that's that is certainly something we cover in the book, and we, we strongly believe um, any 10xer needs to find somebody like that in their lives. And that's actually, I mean, just to add, yeah, that's part of what makes somebody a 10xer is okay. you can't be a top performer if you're not willing to take the feedback and the guidance from somebody who can see those things that you can't see for yourself. Yeah. We all have blind spots, and you need somebody in your corner who you trust to help you see your blind spots and navigate them. And we talk about that very speci- very specifically is two categories, one being inner vision and one being future vision. Future vision is, is, the, is the mentor or coach or partner who helps you see around the corner and, and just you know see those things you can't see. And inner vision is, is where they really help you see. Um, th- there's a concept called Jahari's window where there are four panes of a window. Mm-hmm. And o- only one of the panes is the things that you don't know about yourself, but everybody else knows about you. Huh. And it's really good to have somebody who's, who's helping you read the, read the tea leaves on that and what to do about it. Yeah, completely agree. So what is the talent economy and, and what does it mean for companies? Maybe Michael, you could kick us off with this one. So, I mean, we, we've all heard a lot about the gig economy. Yeah. Um, and I think that the gig economy is, is, is really, um, you know, unfortunately, I think that it's the rest area on the highway between the employed world that we've been living in for the last hundred or so years and the underemployed world we're heading to as automation and AI continue to displace things that humans do. And mm-hmm. I think that right now this is a good interim step because there's a decent number of people who are able to continue to keep themselves solvent by by doing gig work. The talent economy is really much more about those knowledge workers who are providing this this high level of, of value and are really seen as and treated as talent. And they're incredibly important to companies and companies will do, you know, there's a million articles in the last two months about the crazy things that companies are doing to try and entice people to come in. The, the people they're doing that for, those are the people in the talent economy. Um, Rashan, I feel like you probably have a lot more to add to that definition than than I did. No, I I think that's that's absolutely right. It's it's really about again, it's this philosophical shift of thinking about employees versus talent, 
and those people that are crucial for your company, not just today, but for the, the vision of your company for tomorrow, those are people you have to think of as talent. Um, and those are people that are not likely to be quickly replaced by automation. Uh, and so that, that's really what we, we refer to as uh, the talent economy. And you mentioned there that the crazy things companies are doing now to, to attract new talent, retain existing talent. Would you be able to go into a bit more detail there for the listeners in, in terms of some of the things they are doing? So, you know, we have we have two businesses that really reside in the technology world. One is providing mm -hmm. these 10Xers to companies that, that need freelance talent. And, and the value that we provide is very high level people available quickly. The other company we have, which is called 10X Ascend, mm -hmm. is, is where very high level tech professionals come to us with job offers and have us um, help them negotiate it in, in various forms. And so one, one use case I'll give you, I can't name names, but we saw an entire division of a major bank change their pricing structure to get, um, to get somebody in the door that they really thought that they needed. And it was only through the negotiation process that they realized they weren't going to be able to get them for what they thought they could pay. And when they finally understood, really understood, that that was just never going to happen. And more importantly, the reason they wanted to hire this person was so that um, he or she could bring in and hire other people that he or she knew in the world. And, and we explained that there's no way that that's going to happen if this is your pay scale. The bank actually did a remarkable thing, and they changed. They made they made an offer that that was compelling to this person, um, and because that offer was compelling, it was the, the the long and the short of it is the person's boss got a really big raise as a result of this okay. because they would have come in above above their boss. Um, so that's one example. But I'm reading and seeing, uh, you know, signing bonuses and hmm. you know special perks of. Of you can work from anywhere. We'll pay you. We'll pay you as though you're working in the most expensive city. Um, there's all kinds of things. They're getting very creative, um, and and especially in fintech, I'm reading more and more about this, about just offering the sun and the moon and the earth to try and keep or to try and bring in people because they just can't fill. They can't fill roles, and this is happening up and down the economy. I mean, I know this is going to sound crazy, mm -hmm. but there's a Starbucks in the town where I live that's been closing at three or four in the afternoon. The place does bonkers business 24 seven, well, mm -hmm. or, or at least 12 seven. Um, they can't get enough people in there to work to keep the store open. And I think that, you know, that's on that's on the gig worker sort of scale. And then you look over and you and on on the, the talent economy, and you've got the same problem, which is that everybody's everybody's moving around jobs right now. And everybody's you know what I was what I was describing earlier about sort of a personal mission and needing to connect with what you do for a living. The pandemic really brought that to the forefront. People mm -hmm. realized, I think, in a, in a giant global mortality event, people got in touch with the fact that they're not going to live forever and they better be doing something that has meaning to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a gr good thing because people will find their way to the right job. I don't. I don't personally understand how so many people can be out of work for so long and how uh, you know sort of people are, are managing to keep their lights on when there's yeah. so many empty jobs right now but this too shall pass 
do companies need to think about it in a different way and in terms of the way they look at say full-time versus um, part-time or contract-based workers or look outside of their domestic market to get more overseas workers in from from countries with more people that are relevant for the job what, what, what do you think companies need to do from that side yes yes I, to all of that yeah, okay. yeah and, I, and I think the way that you the way that you posed that question was perfect which is they need to throw out the playbook of okay. we have a 40-hour work week you know whether it's you know our company is 60 hours but whatever it's a it it, it needs to go away whatever whatever was needs to be thrown out not because it's bad just because mm-hmm. we should start from scratch and figure out what does this look like and i think that we are going to see so many versions of the future from companies which are experimenting with four-day work weeks to you know split shifts you're going to see people splitting full-time jobs i think there's going to be so many ways that we sort of see the future of work changing but ultimately i think unfortunately as i mentioned earlier the biggest disruption to the future of work is technology is going to make it so that there's just not going to be work for everybody mm-hmm. it's just it's not going to be there and the two things that need to get figured out by you know governments companies and society are how do you keep people out of poverty when there's not enough um, work for everybody to be working and and what do people do with their time talent and energy when they no longer ha- have have meaningful work um, and what does society look like and how do we value people and how do we make sure that people feel valued even if they're not you know doing something that's that was considered like was was previously considered a job or a career mm-hmm. so those are, um, those are the at questions. our at our tech talent company tech talent agency 10x management we have a slogan that is rent fast hire slow and okay. that's specifically targeted at companies who are having challenges filling tech roles um, the one thing that the the on-demand economy has allowed companies to do, and I don't think they've really embraced this sufficiently yet, is if you can't solve the problem immediately with a new hire, mm-hmm. uh, figure out where you can rent that person and bring in somebody at a very high level for a contract period of time while you're trying to find that longer-term resource. Um, so th- that's something that we feel is is very important and really speaks to the question that you asked, like what do companies need to do? Yeah, they need to be thinking about a blended workforce, which d- I don't mean as remote or not remote. I mean full-time versus freelance. Um, I mean domestic versus uh, international. Um, all of those things should be on the table when you're trying to figure out how to solve certain problems within your organization. And this, oh, I just want to add, mm-hmm. this also speaks to um, the the crusty um, enterprise companies that have mm-hmm. draconian MS master services agreements and onboarding processes that make it so that it's impossible to be nimble, mm-hmm. even when there's not a lot. You know, I understand that there, there's a 450 page MSA to do business with almost any bank because they have a lot of a lot of liability. They've had bad experiences, so every time there's a bad experience at any point in the last hundred years, they added three clauses to the agreement to worry about that bad experience. But at a certain point, they've they've just they've o- they've so overprotected themselves, they're actually damaging themselves because they can't get any business done. And those MSAs are always massively in favor of the incumbent, aren't they? And you're looking at it as the the service uh, provider, yeah. just thinking, well, yeah, how can we how can we ever agree to any of this? You know, we'll go out of business if we sign this. 
Right, exactly. Yeah. You're going to pay us 120 yeah. days after our person does the work? Yeah. Come on. We like, can't work with any of your competitors from this list of 200 companies? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the, the things that are in those agreements, you know, border on, on insanity. Yeah. And the only time that we're actually able to overcome them is when, and this is a, a very common use case for us, um, what's typically called a lab group or an innovation group at a company that's sort of a little siloed, powerful thing working on the future of the company, they often find their way to us and our people. And then they'll say to HR, I don't want to hear that they're not an approved vendor. Hmm. I don't want to hear anything other than you're going to figure out how to get me this person working in here in two weeks. Like, yeah. And that's the only way we ever, we, we ever do that. Or the other times we do it, it takes nine months. And whatever problem they originally found us to solve is no longer a relevant problem by the time they get through the contracting hmm. process. Yeah. You've got to have that internal champion, don't you? Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, it's so, so hard. Do you, do you find as well when you when you're working with talent do you find that a lot of talent tend to undervalue themselves in terms of what they've done before and what they're looking to do next I'll take that one um, you, you know our, our background and I don't know that we dove we do we dove too far into this but we have yeah. um, a third company where we manage uh, musicians it's a 26 year old company that mm -hmm. is a very tried and true business model from the entertainment and now the sports world of managing talent um, and when I and this time I'm using talent in the context of a musician or a director um, or, or any any other any other actual um, entertainment or sports talent and we've often were asked as we started the technology businesses who are the bigger divas or who's got the bigger egos and I, I thought it would be helpful to juxtapose um, your question with with that business in mind. Um, our experiences, and of course these are generalizations and we can't speak to every individual person, is that tech talent for the large part completely undervalues themselves. Um, if we put out a call for the best musicians in the world to click on a link and apply for something, we would have such a massive number of people. If we if we put the same call to action out for tech talent, for the best developers, we would have a much smaller number of people because very few tech talent think of themselves, even top amazing people. I mean, we've had people who have done such astounding things who don't think of themselves as being particularly awesome at what they do because they know mm -hmm. they know of somebody who's better than them and that, that keeps them humble. And I think that that's one of the greatest things about working with this this group of people for me is they're, they're, they're humble, they're modest, and what they really love is, is the harder problems. The harder the problem, mm -hmm. the more excited they are to work on it. And that's a pretty exciting sort of set of characteristics for a group of people. Yeah. Yeah, I would say there's an inverse ratio between ego and talent. The more talented somebody is uh, in the technology sphere, technology vertical, the more humble they are, I think. Um, I'm sure there are exceptions. I mean, we've certainly heard about exceptions um, uh, who are founders of, of unicorns. Um, but by and large, I think that the less they know, the more boastful they are of themselves and, and their capabilities because they're probably more insecure. Mm -hmm. um, in entertainment, you don't really have that. You, you've got people telling you you're phenomenal even if you're yep. an average to mediocre person because you've got your parents, your you know cousins, and mm -hmm. they all think you're the best, they, you know. You know, just, just to hammer home the point, you know, there's probably an app that you use on your phone 500 times a day, yeah. and you couldn't tell me who the developer is who made it. 
mm-hmm. if you listen to a song, you know, 10, 15 times, you know who that person is. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, that distinction on, on recognition and, and public profile is often what leads to uh, the bigger egos for one, not necessarily the smaller egos for the other, but the big ones. Mm. And do you, do you work with the tech talent to help them maybe put that to one side a little bit when they are going into different jobs to make sure they value themselves correctly? Is there anything you do there? Yeah, I, I think a lot of what we do often is helping people to realize their value and to mm-hmm. sort of build them up a little bit so that they can go in not feeling like they're, you know, taking wasting somebody's time or taking up space. I mean, there's there's really, I mean, there's plenty of people who we work with who are great and they know that they're quite good and they know their value, but they're also f- absolutely fantastic people who, you know, a- apologize for breathing the air in the room on an interview. Yeah, I know where you're coming from. <laughs> so what, what what is it that makes someone a, a 10Xer? And, and what do you, I mean, what do companies or what do you need to know about them when you're dealing with them? So defining a 10Xer is, uh, we sort of have framework for that, but it's, yeah. it's the kind of person that you know them when you see them. But essentially, it is a blending of somebody who has a very high IQ and very high EQ, uh, emotional quotient. Um, and, and I think a lot of the time what we spend our um, work on, and, and Michael was just talking about this, mm-hmm. is teaching people to understand their value. And that's not their value, you know, necessarily dollar value. It's the value that they provide, uh, the security that they provide to the people that they're helping to solve problems for. Um, and that understanding of EQ, and then there's also something that I've recently been talking about called AQ, which is adaptability quotient your ability to go into different environments and adapt yourself to the way that those environments work, mm-hmm. um, which is so crucial for freelancers, as you can imagine, because they're jumping around from project to project, uh, company to company. Um, those are the kinds of things that when you blend them together, you get a 10Xer. Um, it's, it is, there are real 10Xers out there. We, we represent a bunch of them. Um, I'm sure you've had a bunch of them in your life, Danny, as well. And, um, you know, the second part of the book talks about those things that individuals can do to help push themselves down that 10x spectrum because not all of us can be 10xers. Um, very few of us are actual 10xers, but the idea of improvement um, uh, in all areas is something that we think is, is vital and important. And on the company side, again, it goes back to this idea of talent. Um, you need 10xers at your company. You need to not only be able to attract them, hire them, and manage them, but you need to be able to retain them because the amount of time that you have, that the, the tenure at companies now is down to sub two years, I believe, um, may even be significantly less now that the pandemic is sort of shifting people around so much. Um, so, you know, companies need to have these 10Xers. They need to be thinking about these people and create uh, cultures around being able to source them, hire them, manage them, and retain them. Michael, what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I, th- I think the, the things that I would add to that are these are people who are lifelong learners. They love hard problems. They love learning. They are constantly looking for the feedback we talked about before. So if they can, if they find someone they can trust who can help them see things they can't see, they're really interested in that. Um, and they're, and they also care about mission. And you'll find that these people, you know, don't always go just for the money where the money is it's it's not that they don't care about money they're happy to have it but 
rarely have I seen a 10Xer who will trade money for something that makes them feel icky. They really have a, a pretty meaningful backbone. And of course, we are generalizing the crap out of this. So it needs to, it needs to be said, there are exceptions to every rule, but this is, this is really what we found. And this is what's so interesting yep. for us about this group of people, because it's a really, it's, they're very desirable traits. Yeah. And you mentioned around the, the kind of, the culture is really important, the mission, sometimes they'll go for mission over money. Um, do you find as well that 10Xs need to be in an environment with other very high performers, grade A talent, so that they themselves feel like they're being pushed and are in an environment where they can learn from other very talented people? Yes, two tr true 10Xers don't wanna be the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. Just because you can't be learning, if you're the smartest person in the room, you can't be learning as much as if you're not. Okay. Um, so I think that you, I think you brought up a really, a really good point. But they also are, you know, when when you have that level of EQ, you start to see that you might have the highest EQ in the room, but you can be learning an awful lot about management, about soft skills, about other areas of life from your colleagues who may not be a better developer than you are, but they might have all kinds of skills that you don't have that you want. Mm -hmm. And for people listening to this, maybe they're a department head and they've got a 10Xer in their team or they're running a small to medium sized business and there's someone that's, that's really crucial. They've maybe got some concerns that this person might leave and they just want to make sure that they stay motivated. They they are kind of passionate still to, to do what they need to do, but maybe they're kind of plateauing a bit. Is there anything companies can do or managers can do in terms of you know making sure they've still got that same level of excitement? I think it's, it's a constant conversation of what are you interested in? Mm -hmm. Do you want, you know, we, we talk a lot about personal and professional development when we're doing negotiations because it's often important to these folks. And what that might look like is, you know, sending them to a conference, having them take a class, but also looking down the road at where the, the, the problems that they're working on. If, you know, a lot of our clients have said, the reason I don't want to stay at a, you know, at a big tech company is I start with a big problem and it just keeps getting smaller and smaller as as time goes on. And I like working on big new problems. So part of what a, a, a good manager is gonna do is look at, is this person really being utilized? Is this the best use of their time? And also asking them, are you engaged? What are you thinking about? What, what, what would make you excited? And, and by the way, being a great manager sometimes means you get an answer that is like, hmm, I'm going to need to help this person find another job because whether I help them or I don't help them, they're not going to stay here. So either I can do this on their terms, engender, you know, a great deal of lo future loyalty from this person. Maybe they come back again in the future, or maybe they're just helpful to me and to the company. But you can you can be the ostrich and bury your head in the sand and say, oh, I hope they don't find anything else. But the reality is, these people have job offer after job offer after job offer if they're interested in them. So the only way you're keeping them is by having those direct and honest conversations and giving and connecting what your company is doing and the work they're going to be doing to what their future goals are. And if you haven't, if you don't know what their goals are, you can't do that. Here's what we do know. Companies that treat their employees very well, um, really understand who they are and really have a people first uh, policy. Uh, human resource policy, they can retain 
people far longer than than companies with bad cultures. But at the end of the day, the best and the brightest want to be challenged. So if you don't continue to have challenging projects for them, if they're doing mundane routine work, as Michael pointed out, if they came in to solve a big problem, they solve it and now all the problems are little problems, you're ultimately going to lose them. But if your work environment is phenomenal and you treat people well, they'll stay longer. And when they leave, as Michael was saying, if you help them along the way during that exit process, that word of mouth will spread and other people will want to work there. Um, if, you're, if your work environment's toxic, word of mouth will kill your employment opportunities. And the opposite is true. Couldn't agree more. Um, just, just before we, we wrap up the conversation, um, I wanted to ask you about recruiting as well. You mentioned recruiting there. Um, is there anything people can do in the recruitment process? Lots of companies have very different recruitment processes. They're often very long and there's just different tests and things you have to do. But you often, well, I know myself, you know, sometimes I, I think someone's going to be great in the recruiting process. They've interviewed well, references, check out. And then unfortunately, when you get them started, they don't quite live up to the up to the promises. Is there, is there anything that you do there with, with people to, to make sure they get in the 10Xs? I think that, let me just speak quickly, Michael, to, to one part of this and then I'll let you tackle the rest of it. Um, I don't know that there's any way to guarantee you're, mm. you're bringing in a 10Xer, right? You, you go through your procurement yeah. process. Um, we do have things that Michael will definitely, I'm sure, speak to. But one of the things we talk about in the book is the sabotage uh, impulse, which is the sort of repetitive action that certain people have to bring themselves to make mm -hmm. the wrong decisions and bring the team down. So in the example that you give, somebody interviews well and you bring them in and they're just not good for whatever yeah. reason, yeah. Move, move quickly to have them exit. That, that is the, the best advice we can give, give anybody is when you, when you spot somebody who's not the right kind of performer, move them out of the position. Michael, yeah, go ahead. And you can, you can, I mean, you can really hurt your culture by leaving somebody around who's not the right fit. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that I'm so glad you asked this question. I think the first thing is, and this goes this is in line with everything else we said, is start out once you've got gotten far enough with a candidate to know that you think they're good. You now your next job is to find out what makes them tick. The interview process used to be much more one-sided. You need to, we we created something, um, and we'll 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 share where you can find this. Um, but we created something called a lifestyle calculator, which is a tool that we use when we're helping people negotiate. And the the whole purpose of it is it has 24 different attributes that go into a compensation package, not all of which are relevant in every scenario. But they get 100 points to distribute among those things. So most people put you know 50 on salary and. You know, there's, I've never seen people do, do it the same way. But as soon as you, a company does that, now you know how to start to peak, speak to this person. Because you might have a recruiter who's sitting there telling them 17 ways to Sunday about how great the equity is at the company and how much it's going to be worth. Mm -hmm. And if that person filled that out and they don't care about equity because they've been burned by equity five times before, you're wasting your time. But if you were talking to them about the fact that you have a great vacation policy or you have a great continuing education policy which is what they're interested in you might be winning that you might be winning the battle and it's it, so many times the only thing that is asked of a candidate before an offer is made is what is your salary requirement that is where that is like the only thing that the recruiter gets before they're going to make an offer and by the way i want to be very clear this is not about companies needing to pay more or offer better deals it's just offering the right deal for the right person. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that 
that we've seen, you know, 33-year-olds taking who have three kids at home taking the same job that a 27-year-old single person takes and the 33-year-old doesn't care that there's a gym and a ping pong table and all this stuff in the office because they want to get home to their kids. Yeah. The 27-year-old is super excited about having the social life on campus, whatever, all of that, all of that stuff. But again, you've got to be speaking to the person that's sitting across from you, proverbially spe- speaking. Um, and that's just not happening out there. And companies haven't moved in that direction. Yeah. Um, and, and the last thing I'll just say to bring it back to your, your, the scenario of, of hiring wrong is there's a, there's, a, there's a short part of our interview process that to me is the single most important thing. And it's all about asking, how did you do when you made, what happened when you made a mistake? That's, that's one line of questioning, and, and the other one is sort of in line with you, your boss or, or somebody perceived as your boss is asking you to do something that, that you think is a mistake. How do you deal with it? Mm-hmm. I can get more value out of those questions and sort of tell how 10x somebody is than I can from most of the rest of the interview because what you find if you ask those questions is a lot of people are going to tell you about this horrible mistake and then they're going to spend the next five minutes telling you about how it wasn't really their fault. Yeah, It was really everybody else's fault. And this person did that. And this person did that. And that's not somebody who has humility, who's learning from their mistakes, who's interested in growing, who's reflective. That's just that's distinctly to me that the blame game is actually one of the biggest signs of, of being of, of having a sabotage impulse. Yeah, because how could you possibly improve if you can't acknowledge that you have anything to improve on? It's about all about what, what would you do differently in hindsight and then testing for that kind of positive sphere of influence on what exactly. they would have done differently rather than, oh, well, this department wrecked everything that I'd set up. And you, right. you don't want to bring that person in because they're probably going to yeah. bring that with them. Every right. single yeah. one of us is going to make mistakes. The only thing that matters is how we deal with them. Do, yeah. we, do, we, do we own them? Do we, do we try and correct them? Do we learn from them? I mean, those are the things to me that are the most important in looking at, mm-hmm. at um, candidates. And that's the same advice that we would give a company who has a bad hire, mm-hmm. right? If, if you bring somebody in who you think is going to be great and they turn out not to be great, own up to that and deal with it, right? You, there yeah. is no secret sauce for ensuring that that person is going to be the right fit in your culture. Um, so you just have to you know, deal with that humanely and deal with it quickly. And that employer has to parse, is that, you know, is this person making mistakes because they're new on the job and they're making mistakes and because they don't know how to do it and it's mm-hmm. okay and are they learning from them or are they you know hiding their mistakes we once we once uh let somebody go and after they were gone we've opened a drawer this was back when paper was more relevant mm-hmm. we opened a drawer and found all these things that this person was supposed to be doing they just stuffed in a drawer <laughs> rich and michael i've really really enjoyed the conversation today um likewise yeah i've, I've really really enjoyed it i'm sure the listeners um will get a ton of value out of it as well um just to wrap up i normally ask my guests to share uh, one life or career lesson uh, with the listeners um michael would you be able to to kick us off yeah i think that um i'm happy to do that i, I think i'm going to stay with right where we were mm. which is mistakes often have fairly awesome consequences if you can open yourself to the mistake so you know, the, the, the music industry, this isn't so much a mistake, but the music industry was being horribly disrupted in the early 2000s. And that's where we, you know, we didn't have three companies then. We had one and it was in the music industry. Mm-hmm. And we 
saw it as a threat, but we also saw it as an opportunity. We didn't know what we were going to do. It took us a couple of years to figure out the right thing. But ultimately, we 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 pivoted. We it's not even pivoted. We added a new company. We we built a new business model. We went and pioneered something that hadn't been done, and I think we can both say very confidently that we're incredibly grateful that that moment of stress came upon us and that moment of challenge because it challenged us and what we have now is a much bigger stronger set of of businesses than we ever would have had and we've learned so much um, by having to go into a new field and be you know open to the fact that we didn't know much about the technology world um, and you know that willingness to learn and that willingness to dive in first is head first and and build your wings on the way down as they say is mm. it's really positive and has been great for for me at least personally yeah it's wonderful Rishon? yeah on my end i would say the word um word of advice i would give is grit um yeah. i think that so many people are so quick to to change uh and and cease doing something because they encounter some sort of a problem or an obstacle and I think the people that are truly successful in the, this world are the ones that are able to persevere, pivot, and learn from the things that happen, um, as opposed to just giving up and starting over. Um, so it, for me, I think the biggest lesson um, and the biggest advice I would give people is, is have grit, have fortitude to persevere. Yeah, two, two fantastic ones there. So um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more? And, and feel free to, to plug anything here you want to plug. We have a, a lovely website for our book called GameChangerTheBook.com and uh, there, our contact information is there as well as a bunch of other content about the book and about 10 extras in general. And there's a fun quiz there that you can take as an individual to see where you fall on the 10X spectrum and also you can take on behalf of your company to see how 10X your company is. Uh, so GameChangerTheBook.com is where you can get in touch with us. Uh, Michael Rishon, thank you so much for coming on Digital Transformation and Leadership and sharing everything with the listeners. I've really, really enjoyed it. It was our thank pleasure. You. Thank you. You've made it to the end of another episode of Digital Transformation and Leadership. If you're enjoying the show, please do leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. No need to leave a written review. Just clicking on the five stars is enough. I'd really appreciate it as it helps the show get found and it helps those listener numbers grow. And we'll be back again next week when we will again go behind the scenes with another top business leader to understand how they're digitally transforming their company. The Digital Transformation and Leadership Podcast is a Blue Aurora Media Production.